Hi. Oh, what a nice response. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Arbor, uh, especially if you're new around here, if you're visiting for the first time, welcome. I've met a couple of you out in the lobby, and it's great to have you. If we didn't get the chance to meet, my name's Garrett, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here on staff. So again, good to have you. As the roll-in bumper said, we are in a series called Helping the Hurting. This is week two of a three-week series, and this is really our battle cry as a church of who we want to be, what we want to be about, what we want to be known for in our community is helping the hurting. And we know that the word hurting is a broad category, and so we have zeroed in on three specific people groups, if you will, that is our working definition of how Arbor uh, uh, defines the hurting. is the grieving, Jake, our founding pastor, spoke on that last week, how we are going to come alongside and love and minister to those who are grieving and walk alongside with them. This week, we're talking about addiction. Next week, will be the spiritually lost. So that's the three ways we identify it. We're smack dab in the middle of it. Today, we're talking about addiction. And instantly, when I say that word, I've split this room into two groups of people. The first group immediately identifies with that word as, yes, that's something that I resonate with, I identify with, either I've personally walked through or am struggling with addiction, or I have walked through addiction with a loved one, a family member, something to that effect. The rest of us aren't sure we necessarily identify and resonate with that word. And uh, you're gonna have the, the, uh, the tendency um, to check out a little bit and say, ah, this message isn't for me. But before you do that, please, if I can, I'd like to elaborate on it a little bit because I think that, um, I hope, what I have to say will actually challenge you a little bit and you may identify with this idea of addiction more than you actually think or know. Because 10 years ago, I was in that camp. I did not self-identify with addiction or think that was really part of my life. It's not a word I identified with. What I did identify with is having really dark days, if I'm honest, really dark seasons in my life. Seasons of great unhappiness, lack of fulfillment, and uh, again, if I'm being totally honest, lack of desire to continue moving forward uh, with life on this planet. And so I filled my life with all sorts of self-made coping mechanisms to claw myself out of this darkness, to try and fill a void. I love Jesus. I've loved Jesus my entire life. I was told Jesus is the answer, which I believe is true. However, because I'm human, I often would create other little things, other little idols, other little mechanisms to try and fill the gap instead of going to Jesus to fill it. Different mechanisms to try and claw my way out of this. And so, about 10 years ago, I found myself in a place where I was hitting the bottom and I needed to do something about it. And I'll get, I'll get more into the story a little bit later, but I had to do something about it. And I got myself involved in, it's not, not just a program, not just a, a small group, it's something I refer to as a process because it's an ongoing process. It's called the Genesis process. And in this process, one of the greatest things I learned 
is this whole, I, this whole conversation of addiction is actually less about addiction and more about brokenness. And what we as humans do to deal with, to cope with, to fight against brokenness in our own lives. And so those of you that are in the room that are saying, okay, I don't, I don't identify with addiction, here's what I know you can't identify with. At least days, if not seasons, of unhappiness, of brokenness, of lack of fulfillment, and that there's things in your life that you put into place to try and fill those gaps, to try and fill those voids. Whether the issue is trauma, fear, anger, anxiety, sex, drugs, work, a critical attitude, spiritual stagnation. We all struggle to some degree with coping mechanisms whether we know it or not. And while I don't personally resonate with being an addict in the way most of us understand the word drugs, sex, alcohol, gambling, I do resonate with coping mechanisms for a hard time in my life. And while I can't compare myself to those of you who have wrestled with or are currently in addiction, and I, and I can't put myself in the shoes of those of you who have experienced intense trauma by being in relationship in some way, shape, or form with people that are walking through addiction, I can relate to the concept of searching for things outside of Jesus to cope with my own pain and my own brokenness. So again, I'm gonna go into that a little bit more in a bit, but what I'd like to do now that we've just dove in head first right into the topic, is pull back out for a second and get a big picture view of why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about addiction at church on a Sunday morning and why has Arbor Church decided to go after addiction as one of the core three ways in which we want to reach our community? Simply put, we're talking about addiction this morning because it is a significant issue. Addiction is a significant issue in our life, in our community, and in our world. Anyone who's seen or read the news in recent months has heard over and over and over again about the opioid epidemic, right? Growing up in the 80s, it was about the war on drugs. Now, it's about the opioid epidemic, and there's all sorts of legislation being worked on, millions and millions of dollars being proposed to fight against this epidemic that's hitting us. And here's what's shocking about this opioid epidemic. It is predominantly a suburban, white-collar problem. Suburban, white-collar problem. And it may shock us to know that 80% of those that abuse prescription drugs are Caucasian, are white. This is not a far from home conversation. We live in Woodenville. We're in the suburbs. It's a diverse community, but there's a lot of Caucasians in this area and in this room this morning. This is a significant problem right here in our home, in our backyard. You've heard a lot of this, but I'm just gonna rapid fire a few stats. 116 people every day die from opioid overdoses. Over 40,000 people in America die annually from these drug overdoses. It's estimated that 2.1 million people in the U.S. are addicted to prescription drugs, specifically opioids. Alcohol, we've heard a lot of stats on this throughout our whole life, right? I don't need to labor that. All I'll say is 
it's twice as much, twice as bad as the opioids. Annually, in America, more than 80,000 people die from alcohol-related deaths. It's a significant issue. Okay, all right, so that's, that's around the nation. How does that apply to us? Check this out. Predictive data shows that within a five-mile radius of Woodenville, Washington, right here where we sit right now, within a five-mile radius, 20% of people 18 years or older are destined to become alcoholics. That's two out of every 10 people over the age of 18 within five miles of where we're sitting right now will end up addicted to alcohol. And that same five-mile radius, same people group, 18 years and over, it's predicted that just over 10% of them are headed toward addiction in prescription drugs. That's one out of every 10. So you put those two together, three out of every 10. I mean, not to make you guys uncomfortable, but there's 10 chairs in this front row. Statistically, three of you are headed toward a life of bondage, of addiction, to these substances. This is a significant issue. So that's why we're talking about it this morning. The second reason we're talking about it this morning is because we're stuck. We're stuck. People that experience addiction, people that experience brokenness, people that go to coping mechanisms to make themselves feel better, they're stuck. We're trapped. We're in bondage. A few years ago, actually... Let's not be generous to myself. Many years ago when I actually physically exerted energy. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I just drink coffee and sit behind a desk. Anyway, once upon a time, I was riding a mountain bike at uh, Tiger Mountain with two of my buddies. And if you're, familiar, if you're not familiar with mountain biking, we were doing what's called single track. Just means it's a, it's a pretty skinny, narrow trail. We're going downhill. We're going real fast. It's Tiger Mountain. It's Washington. Rains all the time. It was super muddy, super wet. Um, and I was the last one in line, last of three. My, the, the leader, his name's Damon, his job as he went down was to shout out obstacles that were coming at us, you know, roots, mud, whatever, right? Duck, tree branch. And so we're bombing down uh, this hill and Damon yells out mud. And I see him veer to the right and kind of go around the perimeter of this huge thick mud puddle. Eric, the guy right in front of me, veers to the left. He goes around the left perimeter of the mud puddle. And I felt too clean, so I decided to get a little dirty and I went straight at it. And if you know anything about this, I think it's probably the same for those of you that dirt bike. You don't coast into mud. You don't let off the gas. You get on it, you throttle it. On a mountain bike, you pedal as hard as you can. You gotta keep your momentum up so you can go through it. If you don't, you lose momentum, you get stuck. I didn't wanna get stuck. So I got on it and I'm pedaling and pedaling and I hit that mud so hard and so fast and that's the last thing I remember because the second I hit it, my front wheel sank eight-ish inches into the mud up to my front forks. And if you can picture this, I was going so fast, the front tire stopped, the rest of the bike kept going, and whap, I instantly, no time to even respond or react, went head first into the mud. It's funny, I wish I had a picture of it because it would look really funny, but it wasn't funny at the time. I was buried up over my shoulders in mud. The bike, I'm sitting in a, in a seated position because I'm on my bike, the tires are spinning up there, my legs are sticking up in the air, my head is in mud, and I'm suffocating. I can't breathe. And I couldn't get myself out. I'm wiggling, I'm squirming. Because it was so, the mud was so deep on my shoulders, I was having a hard time getting my hands 
underneath myself and when I would try and push against the mud, my hands, instead of getting leverage and pushing my head out, they would just sink and actually sink my body further in the mud. It was like a quicksand experience. And I was terrified and I was panicking. Thank you, Jesus. My buddies turned around and noticed I wasn't behind them anymore. And so they turned around and came back up. And it take, took both of them to get alongside me and grab me and pull me up and, and release the suction that was created in this mud and pull me up out of the mud. And I coughed and I spit up the mud, had to clear out my nose. It's terrible. My point, I was stuck and there was nothing I could do to get unstuck. And sometimes the hurting can't help themselves. And if it wasn't for my buddies that turned around and came and grabbed me and pulled me up out of that mud, I very likely could have suffocated to death or at least gone unconscious until someone came across me. I was stuck, I was trapped, and I needed their help. Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 21, if you want to look at it, go ahead, the, the words will be up here on the screen. And this is, this is for, for the church people in this room, this is a super well-known, often preached on uh, section of scripture. Just before this is where Paul is saying, man, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing them. What is wrong with me? He says, what a wretched man that I am. And this is how he concludes that portion of his story. Chapter seven, verse 21, Paul says, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. I resonated with that. I love God's, I love Jesus with all my heart. But check this out, verse 23, but there's another power within me. What's that? What does that mean? There's another power within me that is at war, actively working against. There's a power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin. What is it about slavery? You're not free. You're in bondage. You're trapped, you're stuck. And Paul's saying there's this thing within me that actively wars against what I want to do and I'm a slave to it. The good news, he comes just after this that says, thanks be to Jesus who frees me from this. And we're gonna talk more about that, I promise. We're gonna talk more about that. But the reality is whether we know Jesus and love him or not, as human beings, we tend to get stuck and put other things in our lives other than Jesus to try and get ourselves unstuck. And the third reason we're talking about addiction this morning is we as a church, as followers of Jesus, have a responsibility. We have a great responsibility. I mentioned in my mountain bike story that I couldn't help myself. Sometimes those who are hurting can't help themselves. And my buddies in that moment had a responsibility because we were together, the three of us. They had a responsibility to turn around and come back and figure out why I wasn't there anymore. They had a responsibility to save me, to help me out of that mud that I was suffocating in. Jesus modeled this for us. He left the comfort of his own home 
of heaven to come down into our mess, into our chaos. He knew that we were hurt and we couldn't do anything about it. He knew that we were stuck. He knew that we were slaves to sin. And he came to walk alongside us and to show us a better way. Paul, again, writing to the church in Galatia, says this in Galatians chapter six, verse one. Again, this will be up on the screen. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Gently and humbly. Who did that? Jesus did that. He didn't come down flexing his muscles of God and his authority. He came down and he modeled self-sacrifice and love and gently and humbly modeled for us a better way. Paul goes on and he says, and this is important as we're helping people, be careful not to fall into that same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. Here comes the zinger. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're fooling yourself. You're not that important. We have a responsibility as a church, as people that say we follow the way of Jesus. There are people amongst us and there are certainly people outside these walls in our community that are hurting, that are stuck They're battling addiction. They're battling pain. They're battling brokenness. And we have a responsibility to come and walk alongside them. And I want to close this portion. We're going to move on to something else, but I want to close this portion and say this. When we talk about the statistics and we talk about our responsibility, I don't want you to be overcome or overwhelmed with this weighty feeling of, oh my gosh, well, what do we do about it? I don't even know how to begin. I don't know how to engage. I, uh, I don't know if I like this. It's not the size of the problem that compels us. It's the magnitude of hope. Jesus, I think, said probably something real similar. It wasn't the size of the problem. The whole world's messed up. That's not what compelled him. What compelled him was the one. The magnitude of hope. That what if, the question of what if. And so over the course of the last few weeks as we've talked about this idea of helping the hurting, I've had several of you here at the church come and approach me and Jake and Allison and Anna and say, this is my story, how can I help? And it's been incredible to meet you guys and hear these stories and share those conversations with you. And what I wanna do for the remainder of our time together this morning is invite two of my friends up here and we're gonna, we're gonna have a coffee table conversation and we're gonna invite you to be a part of it with us. Because rather than me preaching a message on addiction, I think it's gonna be way more powerful and way more impactful for you to just hear some personal stories. And I also think that it's important that you hear these different stories because there's different perspectives that different ones of us will relate with. One of the perspectives is that of a person who has personally walked through deep bondage, deep addiction to drugs. And another one of the perspectives is someone who has walked through an entire childhood of growing up in a home with someone who is in bondage to addiction and and, and the trauma and, and all that that was caused as a result of being in that relationship and growing up in that household. And then there's me who doesn't relate to 
either of those two perspectives, but like I said earlier on, I relate to brokenness just like we all do and to putting stuff in my life other than Jesus that is taking me down a very deep and dark path ultimately to find only more pain, not health and healing. And so I'm gonna invite our friends up. Would you help me welcome Chance and Jen? Hey guys, hi. Let's pull that table forward a little bit. You got it. So as we, uh, as we get set up here, let's push it forward just a little more so it's in the light. Cool, thank you. As we get started here, if you didn't know, this is Chance. And this is Jen. I know you might have thought it was the other way around. And uh, they both have incredibly powerful stories and I'd like for them to share just a little bit about that with you as we get started. So Chance... You, uh, you've walked through a season of addiction and bondage to prescription drugs. Right, I have. Share, uh, share some of your story with so, yeah, us. I'm, so this is my story, um, the story of one of those statistics that Garrett was talking about. Um, my name's Chance, and I, I grew up in the church and would consider myself a, a follower of Jesus for the majority of my life. <clears throat> but in childhood, I, I also experienced some emotional uh, trauma and abuse that minimized my, my self-worth and my value. And consequently, I had um, a lot of inadequacies in areas of my life. And I felt I had this gripping social anxiety that pursued me um, really for the rest of my life. Uh, up until um, this all kind of came to a head in college. Um, I, I went up to Western, and uh, things were good. You know, I was uh, just trying to fit in with everybody else and, and having fun, partying on the weekends on course for that six-year degree. And, uh, <laughs> but on the outside, I may have appeared fine, but on the inside, I was dying. And the, the pressure to just fit in was overwhelming. And uh, I ended up tearing my ACL at the end of freshman year snowboarding. And that was the point at which I was prescribed painkillers. And the immediate feeling I had was like love and that like, this is for me, this like, now I can finally like, f I feel like myself, all the other problems and, and issues that I was having, they just melted away. And so shortly after that, I ended up getting a DUI and totaling my car. And uh, many of you are familiar with the fall of man. And so this was the beginning of the fall of chance. And it was this four-year downward spiral. And a lot of it I don't even remember still, but um, I can't, became, I pursued that drug and I became fully addicted to Oxycontin and eventually heroin. And uh, <clears throat> it took everything I had and, and I willingly gave it, um, plus other people's stuff as well to fund that addiction. Um, <clears throat> it ravaged my life and it was completely unmanageable and I tried and I tried, I just couldn't get it under control. I was in and out of multiple rehab facilities. And, but there is a turning point. And that turning point was me sitting in my van in a parking lot one day uh, in, in withdrawal and miserable. And I had this moment of clarity where I could 
continue like marching myself down into my own grave and that's for certain or I could reach out and I, I and I could get out and what that required was finding the courage to, to ask for help and it might not sound like like anything insurmountable but when you're in it and that drug is consuming you it's it takes everything you have and and a lot of people don't even get to that point so in that moment i was able to surrender the fight because it was a fight every day of it and um when i surrendered god did for me what i couldn't do for myself hmm. and and he brought and he brought people into my life and he brought the means by which i was able to get sober and um, not just quit, because I quit lots of times, but actually long-term sobriety. And my mom is a huge part of that, and God provided me an angel in her that she's been so faithful and been with me every step of the way um, <laughs> beyond, beyond comprehension. And my dad was also instrumental in my recovery as well. But um, it was that point that uh, really things started to change for me. And um, this process of healing could could start because yeah. it could it absolutely cannot start until I asked for help because I was powerless over it. Yeah. And God willing, next in May I'll celebrate eight years of sobriety. Come on, <laughs> praise God, man! <laughs> so, so this is. That was the hardest thing I, I've ever had to do. Um, but how crazy it may sound, I can actually look back and be thankful for that struggle that I endured. Um, because it's given me now a new perspective on my life in that I don't, I don't find the strength and the hope and the courage within me because it's not there. But rather it's in my creator and what Amen. he's shown that he delivered me through, even how how desperate and dire my situation was and how may, that may be your situation too, um, just confirms to me his power yeah. and his grace. Yeah. And awesome. um, so Paul says in Romans, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And now every day I get to live with that hope. Thank you. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thanks, man. Awesome. <laughs> Jen, you've got a different kind of story that I think a different segment of the group here will relate to. Growing up, not personally struggling with addiction yourself, but living very closely with someone who did. Right. I do. Um, my mom is an alcoholic. Uh, in second grade, my dad left us, my brother, my sister, my mom. And at seven, I became the most responsible person in my house. I, for many years, um, up until um, my whole childhood, I made amazing TV dinners for, <laughs> for everyone. Lots of delicious pot pies. Uh, got us to school, tucked people into bed, turned off the lights, locked doors, and would even wake up in the middle of the night to check to make sure my brother and sister were safe, um, double-check doors. 
and then see if my mom came home that night. Many times she did not, she was not home. Eventually, when I was in early junior high, she did go back to rehab, or go to rehab for the first time, and we were completely all alone. Um, we spent 30 days just keep doing what I've always been doing. She came home, and we thought, great, this is the beginning of our, of our new life, and she relapsed. Uh, that second time that she left was definitely, I never cried, I never, um, I never knew anything different, but that second time was the time I cried and cried out to Jesus because he is all I had. I had nobody else. I only had God. The pain was too immense for me to handle anymore and could only have, he had to be a part of it. I was saved at an early age and, and managed through friends and um, a pastor to go to church and I knew God was special, and I knew he was the only one who's going to get me out of where I was at my house. When my mom left that second time, I just would seek God more and put all of my hope and faith in Jesus. Looking back now, I think it was that reliance on God that put me where I am today. And I, without a doubt, know I am right here on this stage because of God's love for me. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so what would it have been like, Jen? We're, we're talking about, as a church, what we want to be about. And I was saying we have a responsibility of followers of Jesus to enter into this place. As, for you, it was, it was a child who yearned for a mom. And there's people here that relate to that. There's people here that have spouses and they yearn to have their spouse back. There's people that yearn to have their children back. For you, what would it have been like if there was some people in your community, if there was a church in your community that came alongside your mom and got rid of all the, the superficial stuff and the church games we play and said, how can we help? What would that, how would that have impacted you and your siblings? It would have changed our life. We wouldn't have felt so alone. We would have um, been able to, to be, we struggled. When my mom came back from rehab the second time, Nobody walked along the side of us. Nobody was there to care for us, feed us. There were a very, a very small handful of adults who did know. The second time when my mom went to rehab, those adults did not come along the side of us. They did not feed us. They did not care for us. They did not come into our home to make sure we were safe. We were alone. And I think that would have significantly changed the path of, I, I made a choice. I knew God was the answer. I could not convince that to my brother and sister. Hmm. They have struggled and struggled and struggled. And they, it is tragic and it is so sad. It would have changed everything. Yeah. And it has taken me years to be who I am right now. Yeah, well, people here would never know this, but I mean, this is the first time you've ever talked about this. I think when you and I met a couple weeks ago, you said I was the second or third person you've 
ever shared this well with. you're not the second or third i'm sorry you're, there's, no. actually that's good <laughs> i have a bunch of <laughs> i have some loves you know there it was very hard i really worked hard to be the strong person in the family and to put on a face for the family and to be we're okay we're normal where there's nothing going on at home don't look don't look over here there's nothing going on and um I, and and I think how many children are with their parents. I was immensely protective of my mom, and so I, for years, my my husband when we were dating was the very first person I had ever told, ever. I had kept it to myself all of these years, and then um, it was only him and my my best friend when I was twenty. And slowly, this last five years, I've been opening up and opening up and sharing more um, with my close friends. You're, you're like 20. You're like number 20, 25. <laughs> hey, I'm in the first round of the draft. So. You are. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> ah, how did I make this about me? <laughs> so I got more questions for you, but I want to switch back over to Chance. How'd you get unstuck? And how do we come alongside other people that relate with your story and help them get unstuck? Um, Well, that turning point in my story is really how I was able to get unstuck because I was buried like you, you know, and that was asked for help. You couldn't ask for help, but it was obviously a parent, right? Yeah. <laughs> something about my flailing legs. Right, there you go. Said something, that's, yes. yeah, that's a help sign. <laughs> it's like right? a cartoon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that really initiated the whole process. Because kind of like you say, Jen, when you're putting on this facade on the outside, and, but really inside, you're, you know, things are not okay. Right. People sometimes don't know that. And so... They need a they need a little bit of a sign to throw yeah. them a bone here and there, right? Yeah. Like, hey, we could use this, and then that all of a sudden now that opens the conversation, and now now you're talking to them. And so, um, whereas mine was very apparent, I needed help. You know, it was just came down to me um, surrendering my battle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting because both of you guys in your story, and I'm certainly the same way. All three of us. Um, uh, maybe yours is slightly different because it was a little bit later till after your mom's uh, second relapse. But, but there's significant history in our stories of following Jesus and, be, and being involved in church. Um, and what you were just saying, kind of some of the facade stuff, I think is important because that's something that we've talked about. It's something um, we as a staff talk about here as a church and with, with our advisory team we talk about that we want to be a place that is safe and authentic, and we blow through the layers of religious games that we play, and that we can have honest conversations, that we can embrace the mess around us, because like you said, and like I said earlier, that hope that exists. But if we're too scared to have the conversation, because we don't feel safe in a church to have a conversation, then my gosh, how are we ever gonna get free? Yeah. So, so to finish up the second part of your question, Please. it was um, how do we come alongside someone yeah. who's in addiction? And maybe some of you guys have heard this saying before, but how do you know if an addict's lying? If their lips are moving. So, <laughs> unfortunately, that's I feel like there's I'm a not lot of truth in that. At that. Well, well, and I didn't. Maybe it's not <laughs> supposed to be laughed at, but there's truth in that, and that addiction is is really messy. 
and um, there's a lot of disappointment in it. And to be somebody who's trying to help somebody in addiction, uh, it, that's a tough role because inevitably it doesn't really matter so much as what you're trying to do, so much as where their heart's at and if they're ready to accept the help. Yeah. And so, but I would just encourage you, if you know somebody or have somebody in your life, um, to just to just stay to just stay in there, hang in there. You're gonna there's gonna be disappointment. There's gonna be times where you feel like you've been wronged, and but the that's just the nature of the addiction, and to not take it personal, um, but to stay in there with them and to stay invested in their life because most addicts, their self worth and their value is shot, and they don't even feel like they're worthy of. Uh, 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 being transformed or a new life or anything of that nature. Um, so hanging in there and, yeah. and, and pouring that love for when they are ready. And then, and then you're there and they trust you and then you can, you, then you can really provide some help. Yeah. I have another question, but is there anything you would want to no. add? Okay. Chance is killed. He's great. He's the guy. <laughs> That's the guy. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, Jen, a couple years, you were telling me when we, when we talked that it was just a couple years ago that you really felt like the power of the Holy Spirit came and opened you up, that for so long you had been carrying anger, uh, you said to me, a chip on my shoulder. Um, I think ultimately we'd be doing an injustice to ourselves and, and to our friends here to not talk about how does Jesus enter into this? He was always with me. But I did have anger, and um, was never really mad or resentful at my dad or at my mom. But I, I, I looked at the world differently. I was very, um, I didn't trust. I definitely had a chip on my shoulder. I read two books about five or six years ago that changed everything, and those books. The reason they changed everything is I always knew God is love, always. But these books showed me how much he loves me. And that's what's changed because I never had, and, and you, frankly, I probably wasn't even ready anyway, the capacity to, to understand and accept the love that he has for me. And then I was on a mission to fix myself and then give out that love. Amen. Amen. So let's, let's keep on that because we, the three of us laughed as we were talking, kind of getting ready for today. Uh, each of us could share easily an hour about our stories because there's so much and so many intricacies and so much good news of how God has moved in our lives. Um, but we've got like 15 or 20 minutes this morning. So, um, Jen, for people that are sitting here right now and hearing your voice, hearing your story, What's one thing you would hope to say to them, word of encouragement, and a next step? Uh, the number one is God. Just keep your hope and your love in God, and then find your community. Share with them. I didn't understand that importance. Obviously, I was a child, but the importance of community is so significant. If you know somebody who is in it, and you're not walking along the side of them, please reach out to them. Or if you're in it and you don't have community or you don't know what to do, I will be that person for you. Call me. Instagram me. I don't know. Message me. I'm on everything. <laughs> <laughs> or meet me afterwards. I will be that person for you. That's awesome. Thank you. Chance, 
Same question for you. Yeah, so um, if you're here today and this story resonates with you, any of our stories, I don't think it's a mistake that you're here and your heart's being tugged at. And the enemy wants you to believe that you can't live without whatever it is that you're struggling with. Yeah. That, that's like, that, that is it. And, but the enemy's a liar too, and you do not have to live with it. And there's many, many, many testimonies out there to, sh- to prove that. And um, so I would, just, I would just plead with you to find it in your heart, if you can, some way, either surrendering, finding the courage to just say something. To, to, to let somebody know what you're struggling with, to ask for help, because really that's the point at which this whole process of, of finding your way begins. Yeah. And um, that, that whole process is really just as close as your, as your lips. And so mm-hmm. we, we love you. There's lots of people that love you, and I just hope that this is impacting today for you. Yeah, amen. The, the, uh, Chance and Jen, part of them coming up here was obviously to share their stories, but they've got a way bigger heart and a way bigger picture. They want to make themselves available, ongoing. If you're hearing things that you relate to and you want to talk to someone about it, we're going to put their email addresses up on the screen, um, give you a little bit of time to write them down. My email address is on our website. If, if you, know, you want to further the conversation with me for any reason, I would love to do that, but truly, we really want you, um, we, we want to engage in this, and we want to talk further in this. Chance, you said something in the first service that really resonated with me um, as you were kind of closing things up, and what you, just, you, what you just said now was that the enemy is a liar, and you're going to want to convince you that right. you can't do without this. In the first service, you said that the drugs had become your best friend, and mm-hmm. that is something that gripped me because I realized in my path of recovery that the very thing I hated the most, and here's what I, here's what I hope you hear. Each of the three of us have hit a bottom of sort. And it's because of that bottom that we just, we were at an impasse. And it was at that impasse that a decision was made Some of you are at that bottom in your life. You know you're there. Many of you are not. And here's our hope, that you don't have to get there. That you don't have to hit the bottom to lift your eyes up to a bigger picture that's at play. When Chance talked about the drugs being his best friend, it, it, it hit me because the depression and the anxiety that had riddled me for the majority of my life Graduating from college, I spent hours upon hours, weeks, months. I mean, I can't exaggerate how much time I spent in counseling offices and paying a whole lot of money to try and figure this out. And I came to this conclusion, the very thing I hated the most and was crying out to God to take from me was also the very thing that I was holding on to the tightest because the thing I hated the most in my life was also the thing that I'd become the most familiar with. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so it was this weird dichotomy of saying, please God, take it, but don't take it. It's scary. It is really, really scary. But what Chance is saying and what Jen is saying is so true, it's just as close as your lips. 
is taking that step into the unknown, and it is scary. I'm not going to diminish it. But you're looking at three people up here that are able to tell you it's so worth it. It is so worth it. And God is so good, and his word never returns void. His promises are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I hope, I hope that whatever voice you're hearing and resonating with, that you would take an opportunity to follow up with us. And my ask to you who are relating to some of my story that are putting things into your life, you know, coping mechanisms, food, or overworking, or overworking out, or anger, or control, or I, I mean, the list is long and distinguished, but that you would just open your eyes up to maybe a different possibility that maybe Jesus is enough, and that maybe as we engage in a process of diving into that, of letting other people in and walking through this in community, that maybe there is true recovery. Maybe what Jesus said when he said, I came that you'd be born again, a spiritual rebirth. Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that perhaps that metamorphosis is actually possible. And the three of us are sitting here today saying it's not easy and it's not perfect, but it's true and it's good. Yeah, and, and the, risk, the risk is worth it. The risk is worth Absolutely. the reward. Yeah. Can you guys thank Jen and Chance with me? Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Chance. Is this an encore? It's working. Put it up to you. If anybody is in a position where they feel like they want to talk to me, if they're struggling with something themselves or they have a family member, anything, I think the email address was put it up, was there, up there. Yep. And I would love for you to reach out to me. So yeah. thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Chance. So we're going to spend just a few moments. My hope is in reflection and kind of digesting, internalizing this a little bit. Um, I want to invite the band, wherever you guys are, to come up and join me. Um, oftentimes, many of you come prepared to give your tithe or your offering on a Sunday morning, and so I'm going to invite the ushers to come down as well. And I just want to pray for us real quick, and then the band's going to lead us in one last song. And uh, yeah, so you guys feel free to start playing whenever you, whenever you want. But would you guys bow your heads with me and pray?